Yes, welcome to the pre-show. As uh, two blokes who talk about music, or do our best to talk about music on two this podcast. Two blokes who blokes. talk about music. You spent too much time in London, but go ahead. Too much time. Um, do we have, is there a connection between the uh, the passing of the queen and the, the new king and, and, and music? Is, is there is there a connection to, to music somehow? I'm, I'm, I assume you're going to tell me. No, I don't know. I'm asking. It's a conversation. This is not planned. This, I'm just curious. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, like it seems everyone has spoken about. Like no matter what podcast for those for those, for those that are I not to, watching the YouTube video, I'm rubbing, rubbing my brow right at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to figure out where he's going with this, but go ahead. Or should, or should we just talk about your T-shirt that you're wearing that has your name plastered hundreds of times across, just just so that our guest will remember your name? It does. Or is this for me? So Greg is wearing a Greg T-shirt, a Greg's T-shirt. I am. The yes. T-shirt that you you bought me, you brought me <laughs> back, you bloke from. <laughs> Listen. Podcasts uh, are real and podcasts work. Uh, you obviously have heard the news yesterday that uh, Adnan Syed uh, got let go from uh, from jail after 20 plus years. And many people are, uh, are looking back at the podcast serial uh, saying that uh, that played a huge role. In where he is and is not today, so that was uh, that was some amazing news for him, for his family, um, and I don't know for for podcasters. I think absolutely. What are your thoughts? This won't make it to the pre-show. I don't think. No. <laughs> no. no. I do uh, want to ask. I yeah. do want to ask Michael whether or not he gets paid by the pound. Have you? Yeah. Because freaking books are. I mean, you can great start books. Off, you can start off with that question. Yes, are really heavy. Yes, oh. that would be our upcoming guest. Yes. So Michael Barkley, by the way, welcome to the pre-show. Michael Barkley. <laughs> Uh, is following Alan Cross. We had Alan Cross on last week. Yep. Michael Barkley this week. And the one thing they have in common is that they are two uh, people that are, they're music historians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael, I think, focuses almost exclusively or has uh, in in the the three books we have that that he's penned exclusively on, on Canadian music. And and some people know him, some people don't, but almost everybody knows uh, Alan Cross. He's been on the airwaves. Uh, he's got a, even a popular popular podcast, popular blog. Um, and I think that the music industry uh, fans owe, owe a debt of gratitude to both of these individuals, as well as many others, for covering. Uh, music in this country for informing, for educating us, 
And uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm really excited to to speak with Michael right after speaking with Alan last week. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a uh, it's an interesting few years, sort of that that six year period starting in 2000 um, yeah. uh, for Canadian music, and I, I think it's it's uh, it's it's interesting reading this book because it. Um, it was the time when my kids uh-huh. were starting to listen to popular music, popular Canadian music. So, okay. um, you know, we, we, my, my son was into Alexis on fire before we were. All right. Um, you know, we, we, as a family started listening to Billy talent together. So, you know, it's, mm. it's interesting to read some of the chapters in there in terms of uh, the music that wasn't necessarily for when I was a kid growing up, nor when I was a teenager growing up, but more as my kids started to become more self-aware. I mean, they were always brought up with music, but as they became self-aware of their own musical tastes. Yeah, absolutely. And without any further ado, let's uh, speak with author and music historian, Michael Barkley. Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. My name Whenever is you're... Michael Barkley. Oh, sorry. Oh, look, at, look, he's already blown it. <laughs> Go! Jesus. Whenever you're ready. <laughs> That's my Nardwar tableau. <laughs> my name is Michael Barkley. I write uh, books about Canadian rock and roll music. Awesome. I should have told you to say the name of our show. I messed up. That's good. Do it again? Welcome. No. Welcome to the music. There we go. Who's directing this show? Who's, Greg is. Greg's, Greg's the man. No, I'm the, I'm yeah. the audio guy. You're the one that... <laughs> Tell me what to do. No, that, was, that was great. That was good. perfect. That was perfect. Okay. Welcome. I've got... Welcome. Yes. Um, so my chiropractor has an issue. <laughs> with you so first of all didn't see that coming yeah you, you cover a decade in this book correct and for can those your listeners in your listeners at home see that book uh they can't but those on youtube might be able to see that this is a 730 739 page book correct have not been the same have not been the same 1985 to 1995 can rock res- resident renaissance Quack. you you wrote us a smaller book but it's hardcover <laughs> that's uh 482 pages i think reading should be a physical feat yes and then hold on <laughs> only six years <laughs> michael only six years and it's like 100 pages a year 602, 603 pages. Um, 
your chiropractor should be thanking me for giving for the, him for all the business. Your business. Yeah, for the business. I know. I know. I think you, you speak about. You write about. Uh, I think you thank your editor for uh, allowing you to write so much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, have you ever like? I the first thing I thought was, you know, why not write five different books or three I different books? That actually. I did okay. propose that. Yeah. Because uh, you and I both know what the market is like, what people's reading habits are like, uh, mm. what the TikTok generation wants. And I was like, is anybody going to want a book this large? I did bring that up with the publisher. I'm like, yeah. We could have a linked series of smaller books, or you could have a limited edition book that has everything in it. And then if you only want to read about, you know, Broken Social Scene, you can just buy that chapter or something you know yeah. or break it into different ebooks uh not that i had any answers i was just throwing that all on the table and they're like no sure. let's just do one book so Fair um, but i think there are innov- innovative ways to do that with have not been the same they did spin off the tragically hip chapter the blue rodeo chapter and maybe the sloan chapter into uh ebooks that they sell for like oh. five bucks or something okay so if you hear if you are a huge Blue Rodeo fan, and by the way, there is no Blue Rodeo book out there. So if you want um, the definitive Blue Rodeo story up to ninety five, um, you can buy that ebook, and you don't have to carry do any heavy lifting. Nice. So I'm assuming, knowing that you wrote the first, maybe I don't know if it was the first, but was it the first tragically hit book? Um, um, uh, the Neverending Present was was beat to the punch uh, by a couple of months um, by essentially a large photo book that I think was commissioned by Indigo, and there's okay. a Vancouver journalist who um, who did the text for that. Oh, and there's also a quickie ebook by some American guy who writes about twenty ebooks a year. Oh wow! Uh, like he wrote separate books about the stars of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> oh, and then he All cranked right. out a hip book, and that was the first hip book to ever come out now arguably okay. is it a, is it a real book it's an ebook um uh but that really uh lit a fire under my butt to um yeah to do it properly and do it well and to have a, a real life book are you working on the blue rodeo book no uh okay. someone, someone should i mean i do feel like especially now uh i feel like they're kind of winding down uh greg keeler's health issues have really taken them off the road for much of the year and i don't you know, I'm not sure what a what an ongoing. I'm not sure what's left in their in their story per se. Yeah. Um, so it would be a good time for one. So, listeners of the world, there you go. Absolutely. I think awesome. uh, when we talk about this book um, that we're we're discussing today, um, I, I I did really like the way that you took the years or took the took the sort of the, the chapters and sort of interwove the various bands. And the story. So it was like you jump from, you know, AOF into a Billy Talent into Fucked Up and then back to Billy Talent. So I thought that that was very well done and kept, you know, the, the okay. reading flowing versus a one very large hundred page chapter. I, I appreciate that because that's tricky to do as a writer and you're yeah, looking for yeah. the segues. And, and mm-hmm. when you do that, you really underscore the connections between all of these artists. And, um, and then that also separates the book from being you know, an encyclopedia, like mm. here's 10 pages about this artist, here's 10 pages about that artist. And then um, it, it doesn't really form a narrative. So I, um, that said, I feel like every chapter is self-contained. So if you mm-hmm. don't,
don't care at all about those bands you just mentioned, Alexis on Fire, et cetera, you can skip that chapter and you're not really missing much from the book. And I, I would say that about anybody else as well. Any other single, single chapter, if, you're, if you just decide that's not for me. But my favorite compliments about the book are people who say, I didn't know anything about Artist X. And uh, I totally missed that when it was happening. And I'm reading this now and it's, it's a really great story. Yeah. And, and either they then go listen to the music and fall in love with it, or they listen to the music and go, that's not for me, but I really enjoyed reading that story. So mm-hmm. that, that's, that's one of my goals, is, is to at least expose people to this, and hopefully they, they're drawn to the music. Yeah, I'm glad you wrote about Peaches, because there was a co-worker of mine this past spring that, that uh, came from the UK uh, to Toronto, and uh, you know we spent some time together, and she said, uh, yeah, I'm going to this um, festival, I think she said, and there, I really want to see this Canadian artist play. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got a music podcast. I, <coughs> I know, I know Canadian music. And she goes, Peaches. And I go, yeah, really? Canadian? I've never heard of Peaches. <laughs> and then she goes, yeah. And so I go online. I go, oh, yeah. And then you wrote about Peaches in your book. I go, okay. She, she's, uh, yeah, she's did someone that it, I, I should Did any of it ring a bell or was that all entirely new to you? It was all entirely new. All entirely new to me. I was, yeah, it was, it was a shock. I'm glad you wrote about, um, uh, about Danko Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I've only recently discovered him through Instagram and Twitter. Right. He's quite a lively presence. Yeah. And I'm like, why did I never hear of this person before? And right. so I'm glad you, I'm glad you wrote about, I wrote about him. Um, you know, you talked earlier, uh, Michael, about, you know, here's, you know, five pages on this band or this artist and, you know, you didn't want to write an encyclopedia necessarily, but was there uh, an artist or a band that maybe was the last band that got cut off from this book that didn't make it? In terms of chronology, in terms of time? Yeah, in terms of maybe... <laughs> Maybe in terms of length of the book, I don't know. Well, yeah, no, sure. There's a lot of stuff I, I would have loved to have also have written about and, and yeah. some of my favorite artists. But I, I tried to stick to the thesis as much as I could, which was okay. this is um, uh, this was a transformative time. So a lot of these success stories are unusual and they're not mm. kind of the traditional you play the clubs, you get some press, you sign a smaller deal, then you sign a bigger deal and then you're on radio and boom. Um, yeah. So a lot of this was like, how did this happen? And and success stories through, you know, through through file sharing or message boards or um, uh, uh, just various methods of, of your music finding its way overseas and people being really into it. Um, there's a lot of people who only ever really had success in Canada that I didn't write about. Um, okay. So another part of my lens is that everybody in this book would be recognizable to uh, people overseas, uh, certainly in, in the niche genres. Uh, you sure. Know, definitely very few of them are mainstream stars. There's only like three people I would say are uh, close to household names. Um, everyone else, you kind of have to be in that genre of music to know. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, there were a lot of people that got left out. And in terms of chronology, like, in, like if you mean like people who came just after 2005, 2006, yeah, um, no, I was just just curious, you know, whether whether there was someone you wanted to write about, maybe there was not enough space, or even, you know, you joke about it, I think, in the beginning of your book, uh, where, you know, you were curious if people are going to start coming up to you and saying, hey, uh, you, 
You didn't write about my favorite artist yeah. who I thought had a great album or I went to a great show. Um, yeah. Has anyone come to you uh, since April and said, hey, Michael, what the heck? Uh, yeah, they're managers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for which for which bands? <laughs> well, it's it's um, one of the MVPs of the book uh, who I didn't get a chance to talk to for it, but um, his name is everywhere and his name is Chris Taylor. And uh, he is a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer. Okay. In the 90s, he was the singer of a reggae band called One, as in the numeral. And okay. um, and then he went into entertainment law. And basically, he got pretty much everybody in this book's record deal. Or like he helped them maneuver their way around. Uh, and of different genres of music, He's he was just kind of everywhere in the Toronto music scene uh, at that time. And uh, so he got a copy of the book and wrote to me and told me how much he loved it and shared some some stories that were great. And then he's like, but, you know, you really should have written about death from above. Mm. <laughs> and um, it's true. I should have. Um, they totally fit into all the, the thesis and the markers of the book. Um, I'm not a fan of that band. So that's one reason um, oh. I didn't. Um, OK. And another reason is that uh, their success was very quick and very fleeting. Um, and there were elements of their story that were similar to other stories I was telling so a, a band like the Unicorns, for example, or, um, I'm just trying to think of others, but at some point when you're writing about all these people, you have to be like, okay, well, who, where are the unusual stories? And if, if, you know, five artists became successful the exact same way, I'm not, I don't want to tell the same story five times. So I have to focus on one. Um, so yeah, there's definitely bands like that, that, uh, that kind of got inched out. Um, I think the the Stills would be another one who who fit yeah. into this time frame. Uh, also did quite well internationally. Um, one of my favorites, Great Lake Swimmers, uh, mm-hmm. is uh, didn't do as well internationally as some of these other acts, but but definitely were present and, and touring the world and had records on labels around the world. Um, so yeah, there's there's about ten to a dozen artists. I think you could make a good case that should be in this book and are not. But again, as I say in the book you're already complaining about how much it weighs. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's only me. I'm, I'm getting old. <laughs> oh yeah. He is old. He is old. I'll, I'll give you that. Um, so it, it's funny. You talked about, so you talked about what it was before. And I think of myself as a musician in the, you know, late eighties, early nineties or through the mid nineties. Um, and you're right. That's what it was. I mean, you know, look at our lady peace, Mike Turner played in our band and then went on to start our lady peace. And, you know, you, play some gigs, you, you meet up with Arnold Lanny, you would do some demos and you get picked up and away you go. And there's a lot of other stories like that back then too. It is very different. And one of the things that I I really dug in the book, and again, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm probably going to focus on this chapter more than any for me personally, but is just the story of the sort of DIY you mentioned about message boards, sort of guerrilla tactics that Joel Carrier and Dallas and and Alexis on Fire used. And I, I, you know, again for anybody that hasn't read the book yet, I'd love for you to just sort of talk about that and sort of you know what they did um, at that time to really you know break the mold of how you make it. Yeah, I mean, they had some traditional methods as well. Like they would, you know, just flyer outside other bands' shows, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know, they say, "What's your favorite band?" And someone would say something. They're like, "Well, we're that band, like that band, but heavier." You know, just like <laughs> just very word of mouth um, uh, hype. And then, uh, but also again, this is the dawn of, of message boards, and that's really 
um, I mean, talk about niche communities. That's the point of a message board, right? Like I am the only person I know who is into X. And here I have found all the other people who are into X. Uh, it could be the LA punk band I'm talking about. It could be the algebraic uh, uh, number. Um, mm. And uh, so, uh, and Joel Carrier of Dine Alone Records really kind of uh, tapped into that scene, particularly in the Golden Horseshoe area, St. Catharines, Niagara, Hamilton, uh, and into Buffalo. Um, and Alexis on Fire were playing all these basement shows everywhere, and all these kids were super into it. And the band themselves were still in high school. They were literally yeah. kids. Um, and then they had this situation where they somehow uh, muscled their, oh, they first of all, they got a video grant, and they made an amazing looking video. Very well shot, very beautiful looking, uh, in the mode of some Radiohead videos or this Swedish band called Refused that they really liked. And then um, they got into Much Music, but Much Music did not want to play it. And they somehow twisted their arm to put it on the vote-in show. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and usually the people who win the vote-in show are Justin Timberlake and you know Britney Spears and, and a lot of the, the bubblegum stuff at that time. And uh, they tap into message board culture, and then all these kids vote for it. And suddenly it beats Justin Timberlake. And they're like, what just happened? And then um, you know George Strombolopoulos works at Much Music, and he happened to be at that band's first Toronto show and loved them, bought a t-shirt. So uh, they have an in there, a big fan. Um, and they're one of kind of the last bands. I find them interesting because <clears throat> they're one of the last bands to be broke by much music, right? Because shortly after that time period, much music gets increasingly, increasingly irrelevant and is not really mm. what it was in the eighties and nineties, which was massive. Cannot underestimate the importance of much music, especially for hip hop in this country. I think that hip hop in this country would not exist without much music because radio wasn't going to go anywhere near it. Um, and that's also true of a lot of aggressive music. So they're one of the last bands that much music helps. And um, at the same time, they've got this groundswell of online support. Um, mm -hmm. And then they become one of the biggest bands of that decade. And uh, they weren't a band that I followed. It's not my genre of music. And I'm 10 years too old for it, but people 10 years younger than me, like that is the band of their generation. That is the tragically hip of that generation, right? For on a variety of levels, really. And um, my friend, Sam Sutherland, uh, with whom I worked at Exclaim Magazine said, you know, people like uh, poop their pants about the success of broken social scene or, or like all these other arts and crafts acts or other indie acts, but Alexis on Fire actually had number one records in Canada. Like they sold, so many they were huge mainstream band while existing mm -hmm. outside the mainstream mm -hmm. um and because of their genre of music i don't think they get respect for that i think they do now actually but i think for a long time they didn't from schmucks like me who didn't really understand um the importance of what was happening there. well it's funny because if you're if you're 10 years too old i'm probably then 20 years too old and and the during during the pre-show we were actually talking about it because um you know, Alexis on Fire is actually a band that my, how old's my son now? Just 27, I guess. My 27-year-old son was the one that brought, and again, you know, my kids always grew up around music. They listened to, you know, I always played the salads and, you know, all the local buds that we all hung out with, right? So, actually, that was even after me. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is you know, my kids grew up with the, all the sort of local music, the bands and stuff, and Alexis on Fire was really my son's um, growing up moment as a young kid who then brought the music back to us. And we all went, wow, mm -hmm. wow, 
Like this is pretty incredible stuff. So, so um, he was 12 years old, 15 years ago. That makes total sense. Yeah. 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 And, and, and to, to him, it was, you know, same with Billy talent. I mean, well, not the same as much as Bo Billy talent. We were all into Billy talent, but you know, and again, we've covered that off in the book, but yeah, it's uh uh, we had Alan Cross on last week, and one of the things he was talking about was people don't sit down and listen to music together anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to him, I said, well, I, I will tell you as a family that grew up with music, we love to do that. So we've always, you know, even to this day when they're 27, they're coming in and my son's bringing in like Lawrence, the band Lawrence, and going, you guys need to sit down and listen to Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you know, we're going to the show at history, you know, yeah. anyway, that's, well, that's I, great. I, I mean, a lot of families have <clears throat> more sets of headphones in the car, you know, and nobody's yeah. listening to anything together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then kids don't hear their parents' music and kids don't hear, sorry, parents don't hear their kids' music. And then there's this disconnect where it's no longer something that brings people together. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about in from, term from the book also is, um, so you mentioned broken social scene um, when Brandon was in head or H head, depending on however you want to say it. Um, they were from Durham. We were from Durham. We played a lot of shows together. And then, you know, Brandon went on with um, Kevin and everybody to start broken social scene. But one of the things I found really interesting, in the book was that dive deeper into sort of the, there was such a cross pollination of bands during that time. And again, I think that's part when you talk about sort of outside of the normal way of doing things, you know, with metric and deers and, and, and other bands, it was just like the sort of, you know, by divine right. Like they all just sort of like everybody just sort of um, not intermingled, but you know what I mean? Like there was that cross pollination. Can you talk a bit more about that at that time in the scene? I mean, I think it's it's not uncommon really in any city, in any scene, but I think what made that time special was that um, the end of the 90s, uh, it did kind of feel like the bottom dropped out of a lot of things. And and that kind of uh, goal of the big record deal and the big success uh, just didn't seem feasible or even desirable because everybody knew somebody who'd been burned somehow. Yeah. Um, so it really was this all for one, one for all. Let's just do it. Let's just, just like, let's not worry about making big shiny pop songs like let's just mess around and see what happens and you come over to my basement we'll throw something down and i'll show up at your gig next week we'll do something um you know it was a time of uh uh like hayden had this hardwood wednesdays songwriter series then jason collette had his radio mondays um kind of more of a folk festival workshop Mm -hmm. atmosphere but not folk music like with uh many different genres of music um including Peaches, who apparently freaked a lot of people out at uh, one songwriter's workshop. Um, so uh, that was that was really Wait, wait, wait. On. Hold on, Michael. What, what happened at this workshop? What did you hear happen? Well, it was a bunch of, uh, you know, acoustic guitar playing uh, singer-songwriter types, which she was more familiar with, or quite familiar with, because she started out in kind of like an Indigo Girls-style duo. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but she shows up with, you know, her, her, uh, synth slash drum machine and, 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 uh, does her rather raunchy act. And then everyone else is just horrified, you know, <laughs> this is not, this is not Pete Seeger. And, um, and then she got some, uh, I think a review in now magazine that, that, uh, dismissively referred to it as like a one woman throwdown. And, and then we oh. got back to the real music, <laughs> so, oh. which I think she uh, took as a badge of honor. That she had uh, nice. offended that kind of crowd. That's, um, that's, that's a punk ethos. And then, and then in the case of Peaches, where she was like, 
nobody in Toronto is really getting what I'm doing or very, very, very few people are doing. So I'm just going to go to Berlin and get, um, you know, an apartment twice the size for the same amount of rent and, uh, and just tapped into what was happening there. And she's still beloved in Berlin. I was in Berlin in the spring and talking to this veteran music journalist and, um, showing him the back of the book and who's, who's in the book. And he's going through, he's like, yep, 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 yep. Oh, peaches. Peaches is our mascot here. Like she's like our town mascot. Um, so, uh, all of which is to say that, yeah, there was that kind of lowered expectation and this idea that anything can happen. And that was the, the groundswell of creativity that I think really felt, sorry, really fueled this moment. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you get to people that say, why didn't you write about the whole decade? And it's like, well, later, um, after these people became successful, particularly Arcade Fire, which kind of capped uh, that era, uh, building on the groundswell of, of everything that had happened, um, then it wasn't unusual anymore. And then the, then that expectation comes back in, right? Then people are like, Oh yeah, if I just get my song on this blog or, you know, then it becomes a bit more rote and formula. But these six years was the wild west. This was like, nobody mm-hmm. knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, I think if we had spoken this spring, um, our discussion and fandom of Arcade Fire would have had a different, we would have been speaking differently. Certainly. Now that we're now that we're speaking in mid to late September, um, almost four weeks uh, since news broke of of Win Butler's extracurricular activities, this is a different uh, Arcade Fire yeah. uh, conversation. Uh, I remember seeing your tweet, and I assumed it was about Arcade Fire and, and Win Butler, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Uh, but then after going through the book, I go, oh, this is 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not talking about just some person that happens to be a friend. You're actually talking about some person that we all know who, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but seemingly was a very good friend um, of, of, no. of yours. No, I wouldn't say that. I, we were very okay. Uh, we were very friendly. When I lived in okay. Montreal, um, uh I only knew two people when I moved there um, yeah. that I wasn't working with and because uh, I moved there for a job and um, uh, and one of them had just joined Arcade Fire uh, and that was Tim Kingsbury. So I, I got to know that whole band like as that was Fair just enough. taking like while they were making the record and, and there yeah. were dinners and there were, um, you know, out of town trips and, and uh, I would never say I knew when. Sure. Extremely well. He's a hard person to get to know well, but I do know other people in that band quite well. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that news uh, really rattled me. It was really gross. I couldn't think about anything else for about a week. And um, it's an interesting time to talk about this book now in ways that it, in mm. different ways than the spring. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. And it I'm is. only kind of just beginning to do that because uh, I. After that news broke, I quite honestly didn't want to talk about the book. Um, mm-hmm. I can imagine. not that week. It just didn't, uh, it's not something I wanted to promote or be in front of a microphone talking about. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, quite honestly, while writing the book, I was terrified something like this would happen. I had no idea about whom. Um, but, you know, in this day and age. Oh, just like in general. Like in general. Yeah. I'm writing about 42 different artists. 
Yeah. What are the chances that one of them will get me too'd, will be uh, QAnon, will be uh, anti-vaxxer, will be uh, a Russian stooge? Like, <laughs> take your pick. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. chances are high that somewhere in this pool of people, something like that is going to happen. Yeah. And it did. Um, so, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people about how to entirely selfishly i mean there's lots of things we could talk about here but entirely yeah. selfishly about this book and this narrative um you know this book is about 42 different people or it's 42 different acts many of which are bands with many people um and uh arcade fire are definitely a through line and they kind of conclude the book because i feel like their success really was the cap on that era um uh, I stopped their story in 2006 um, or five, really. I mean, a lot of people, everybody in the book, I, I, I didn't want to tell everybody's whole story. So generally, sure, I yeah. can stop it at some point and then say, everyone lived happily ever after. <laughs> um, and uh, which in general, they did. But um, uh, so this this book is not about Arcade Fire's entire history. This is about the moment they became successful. Yeah. And the scene from which they became successful. So I would hope that people are still able to read this book um, and take away all the good parts. And uh, we can wrestle about how you feel about it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to get into that on a microphone, but there's there's many different ways one can feel. And some people are not phased at all. And some people are extremely phased and want to burn their records. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I think I think this book is about that moment. Uh, what made you more comfortable speaking, uh, speaking about it now? Like maybe you took like a self, you know, you, you sort of said, I'm not talking about this for the next little while, but why are you more comfortable now speaking about it? Because my friend Kareem had me in his calendar for September 20th. And, uh, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, the, this news broke in the fall and I was like, yeah, I should start booking some, uh, some events and, and hustle the book a bit. Cause I was, I've also been very, you know, COVID shy and I didn't want to sure. host super spreader events while releasing a book. <laughs> um, so I, um, uh, I only had two things on my calendar and one was in Hamilton last weekend and one is in Toronto this coming Saturday, September 24th. If you're listening, uh, it's, uh, in, that date hasn't passed yet. I'm at Harbor Front at 4.30 with Cadence Weapon, part of the Toronto International Festival of Authors. So I had three things on my calendar, which yeah. was you and two live events. So, yeah, I am I am seeing how this evolves as I talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, I would talk funny. to... Sorry, go ahead, Greg. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, um, changing a bit of subject here, but when you talk about you didn't carry on the story again and go back to the chapter that i really honed in on um what i loved in the book was you actually carried on the story about billy talent and aaron with his ms and and jordan from alexis on fire jumping on Mm -hmm. uh the kit to support aaron and the band um through the album through the tour and uh and i've got goosebumps because i remember billy talent leaving the stage and i think i leaned down this is almost like an mc5 when dave grohl showed up and my son went dad i think dave grohl's on stage 
I, I went leaned down to grab a beer and my wife said, I think Alexis on fire just hit the stage. And I'm like, what? And they did that encore and you covered that. So I thought that was really nice. I know you, you know, didn't talk about a lot of bands, but I thought that was a really nice way to sort of close that section around Billy Talent out by covering that. Well, it really underscores their connection and that's why it's in there. Like it's, it was, it was, it was very relevant to the point I was trying to make. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's very few, if any events after 2010 that I even mentioned in the book. Um, but, uh, Alexis on Fire was, yeah, their story kind of did extend. It felt important to cut, kind of cover it up to their initial split um, to at least get that far. Whereas with a band like Effed Up, it was, um, uh, there was no real drama or that I'm aware of, um, which I feel is an important qualifier. I have to keep adding now. Uh, there was no <laughs> other uh, drama that I was aware of in the rest of their career. There was no split. There was no hiatus. Like, so, um, uh, but even their story uh, extends a bit just because they didn't they didn't really break until 08, 09. So even though they're quite active in the time period I'm writing about, they don't actually put out their first full-length record till 06, mm-hmm. which, you know, you could argue that, well, they shouldn't be in the book because they're outside the time frame. But they're extremely active in those first five years. They already have an international reputation based on a series of singles. Um, they definitely fit in thematically with everything else in the book. Um and so, yeah, that that chapter in particular has some stories that extend beyond my, my self-imposed deadline, just because it really made narrative sense to, to talk yeah. about that. Whereas a lot of other people, there's not a large um, narrative shift in their story. But those yeah. people, there definitely is. And it's it's this really poetic kind of, uh, yeah, coming together with, yeah. with those two bands. Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, it was an amazing, not expected event. Um, but yeah, it was a beautiful event. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think high school going into university, you know, all my friends making fun of me that I would listen to this loud music um, that you that they claimed you couldn't dance to. um, And and he's talking about Roger Whitaker, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I would make I would make fun of them listening to like Diamond Girl. Ooh, oh, I would make fun of, you know, the the music and the lyrics that they would listen to. but there was a point in time not too long ago when I felt, oh, I better not tell anybody that I like a few songs from this band called Nickelback because it seems if you like Nickelback, uh, you're 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 not cool anymore because uh, they're they're the rock band that everybody loves to hate. Um, it is interesting hates, that you and hates to love, but go and ahead. hates to love. Yeah, true. <laughs> Um, it is curious that you're, the shortest chapter in this book is the book on 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 Nickelback. Um, why why are they so successful? Is my first question. Why? What are your thoughts on their success and why apparently they are so loved? Um, you're asking me to say nice things about a band that I do hate. Uh, oh geez, and I don't. Uh, <laughs> I don't hate them because I'm trying to appear cool. Yes, I have a genuine, visceral, physical reaction to that music. Okay, um, but I also, you know, it's subjective, and I'm not going to knock somebody for liking them. I have, um, you know, I don't like Creed, and I don't like. I don't even like Pearl Jam, Kareem. So I am not the target demo for Nickelback. 
musically. Um, And, uh, but I have to admit, I was on another podcast where they were kind of jukeboxing me and like playing uh, songs from artists in the book. And then I would talk about them. Yeah. And they sprung um, uh, How You Remind Me. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I have to admit, like just entirely objectively, while suppressing my own vomit, this is an extremely well-written, well-crafted pop song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The piccolo snare kind of drives me nuts, that 90s thing. Like, but um, uh, of course, it's a catchy song. And that's why it's so popular. And his other songs are incredibly catchy. And they, you know, if you do like that kind of hard rock sung by constipated men, you will love this band. (laughs) Um, So... That's why they're popular. Do I need to explain this? <laughs> um, I was going to ask why are they so hated, but I don't want your answer. Why are they because- so hated? Oh, that's well, that's a whole other sociological question uh, involving class, involving um, uh, involving class. Sure, I've, I haven't heard that before. Well, I think it's uh, it's. There's, there's like an archetype, especially with, with hard rock or with mainstream country music or with yeah. hip hop for that matter. Yeah. Um, people associate certain music with a certain uh, class of people, often a certain ethnicity of people that uh, it's easy to look down on. So again, depending on where you're coming from. Sure, um, sure. You know, the last thing that it seems to be okay to hate are... Uh, working class white people, maybe even from Alberta. So, uh, Hmm. it's, and you know, in the same, same is true of like mainstream country music. Like it's, it's, um, uh, so I think there's, there's that element, that element of it. And, and, you know, that, that goes back to people who used to hate Bruce Springsteen until they actually listened to his songs and realized how amazing he is or, uh, yeah. You know, take your pick of like popular so-called working class rock stars. Like there's there's a long history of, of scorn heaped upon people like that. Um, and so, you know, the rest of my book is largely, you know, music for uh, uh, bookish uh, campus radio nerds who are really into low self-esteem music. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, present company included. I, I totally own up to that. And yeah. uh, if you're really into low self-esteem music, you're going to hate Nickelback. Yeah. So that's what it is. And I don't I don't spend a lot of time on them in the book. I don't want to give anyone who hasn't read the book, I don't want to give that impression that I'm equating Nickelback as being just as awesome as Arcade Fire or something. Um uh, but you I have to read the book to make sure you're not Yeah. Yeah. Uh it's amazing how much the those seven hundred words in this book have uh generated in conversation. But it's um <laughs> but they were the biggest Canadian artists of that time. Right? Yeah, they're one of the biggest artists. Yeah. Period of that time, of that, they were yes. more popular than Destiny's Child during that decade. So, yeah. um, and and you know, I just it would be ignorant of me to write a book about Canadian music and dare not speak their name. No, we should speak their name. We should talk about it. Yeah, and 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 in doing so, I I you know I I don't shy away from my own feelings about it. But I have Danko Jones defending them. I have Corb Lund yeah. defending them. And saying, you know, people hate them because they're easy to hate. And people love to hate them. That's why they hate them. Yeah. And Cor- Corb Lund makes the excellent point. He's like, you know, when I grew up, I was told that the band Kiss was garbage and juvenile. And 
stupid and the death of rock and roll, but I loved my Kiss records when I was a kid. And he's like, I suspect that a lot of people in 20 years are going to love their Nickelback records unapologetically for the yeah. exact same reason. Um, you know, I also hate Kiss, so I feel like I'm at least consistent. Uh, <laughs> but um, lots of people love Kiss, you know, and Kiss went from being scorned and just music for kids' lunchboxes to like, I've never used the word respectable, respectable, but, um, you know, they are what they are. They're a major cultural force and they've, they've, they, they won in the end, you know, they won at the time and they won now and back's yeah. in the same position. I, and so I, think, Greg, I think that's what, that's what, that's essentially, I think the point Danko made in the book, which is who am I to fault them for their success and, and what they've done? Like maybe I hate them at the time, mm-hmm. but looking back now, it's like they did something incredible. Well, he, so, opened, I mean, he opened for them too, right? So. Yeah. And he was saying they treated us amazing. Yeah, it's like I I spent 10 years playing clubs that smell like piss and it's like and now I have a chance to to play really great, huge halls opening for a big band and get treated well. And people are going to tell me that's not cool. It's like, screw you. Like, (laughs) I'd like to be treated well for a change. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But all of this also brings up just um, the timing of this book, you know, 20 years after a lot of this stuff happened and interviewing people. um, You know, there is a maturity and and. Mm. Uh, a lot of the kind of petty juvenile grudges people had in their twenties uh, has kind of evaporated. Um, people are like, you know, everybody has that when you're twenties and you you play with another band and you're like, we're going to blow them off the stage, you know? And then um, the longer you're in the business, if you're strong enough to continue to be in the business, because it's very sure easy, you, you, you gain real empathy for your fellow um uh, tradesmen, tradeswomen, people still doing it, you know? You all mm-hmm. have this weird thing in common. You've stuck with this artistic pursuit. Um, and I think I think a lot of the snobbery kind of melts away. And there's a couple of people in the book. Dankel is one. Um, Nick Thorburn of the Unicorns is another. It's like, you know, you can be a dick up until about your 25, and then after that, it's just not a good look. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you just really are a dick. Whereas, like, it's kind of funny before, before the age of 25. It's it's interesting. You didn't, um, you know, Dango Jones talks about, um, you know, somebody uh, from Broken Social Scene. I'm going to assume it's his former roommate. Um, but, you know, no, he specifies it wasn't his former roommate. So. Oh, he d- OK. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, who, who slagged him and he's, you know, just he said just F you. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you don't quote any artist uh, who says that they don't like them. Was that? On purpose? So, like, who? Nickelback or Danko? Nickelback. Why would I? Everybody knows who hates Nickelback. I don't <laughs> know. Well, is I, don't, it, I don't know. Is it is it public? No, I don't know. Well, first of all, he didn't tell me, and I don't think it mattered. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's symbolic. Okay. It's symbolic. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't need to out people as Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> Other than yourself. Other than myself. <laughs> my, name is, my name's on the cover. I have to yeah. own that. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, absolutely. You, you're right. When you write about Danko Jones, he li- he sounds lit like one of the happiest people in music. Um, oh, I don't know if I go that far. Well, he's, he's, he sounds <laughs> hot. Like for someone who had to go overseas and not just down in the States, but literally overseas yeah. uh, to become successful. Um, he's 
he sounds comfortable in his own skin. He, he understands who he is and he understands who he isn't. Yeah. Uh, and he's, you know, of, of course, I'm sure he, he would want way more success and more nickelback type tours. But he sounds like, yeah, this is who I am. And I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm happy about it. And F you if you don't like me. Um, yeah, I mean, he still has number one radio signals in Germany. So it's like he's. That's he's nuts. Complaining. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, he was someone else who, again, I don't know if you can tell from this conversation, but I'm not really a hard rock guy. <laughs> so, yeah. No um, Pearl Jam, no Nickelback, no Kiss. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> low self esteem music. That's my. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I would not say I'm a Danko Jones fan. I appreciate his music a lot, though. I yeah. appreciate his commitment to an aesthetic. Um, He's always had a great band as his bass player and, and various drummers over the years have been awesome. Um, uh, he's very entertaining to go see live. He's not someone whose records I'd ever play. Um, and I, you know, when I was initially outlining this book, I wasn't sure if he would be in it. I was thought, you know, just thinking of my own personal taste. It's like, I don't know. And then the more I learned about him and especially after talking to him, he's an amazing, you, you need to talk to him. He's a great, great interview. Yeah. Um, We've been trying. If you okay, can pull good. any strings, yeah, we, sure. we 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 have been trying to get Danko. Kareem uh, posts on Twitter about once every three days begging <laughs> Danko to come on our show. Maybe not. Uh, well, he's a busy guy. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, just uh, getting to know him through interviewing him. I I really like the guy a lot, and he's he's got much more interesting and wide musical taste than he's given credit for. And um, and again, with a lot of people who I decided to include in the book, it was really their story that attracted me. Um, and it's a story that a lot of Canadians don't know. I've spent a surprising amount of time talking about Dangle Jones in interviews for this book, which I did not anticipate. And I think yeah. that's because it's very surprising for a lot of people because they don't know that. And that's, speaking broadly, a lot of people don't know, again, that Peaches is so big in Berlin, mm-hmm. uh, that Dangle is so big in Sweden, that the weaker thans were so big in Germany. That, um, you know, Lexus on Fire does well in Australia. Like, Billy uh, Talent plays massive shows in, in Europe headlining huge, festivals. Huge. Like, Bigger than yeah. Saga ever did, yeah. if you know anything about that history. Right. And, um, uh, and that's, you know, going back to our tragically hip conversation a couple of years ago, um, we Canadians measure success by the states, and that's mm. not the measure of success. Obviously, that's the Holy Grail. Very few people get to do that. Um, the people who do often sacrifice a lot. You know, I talk a lot about how uh, Terry McBride managed Bare Naked Ladies and Sarah McLaughlin, like who basically sacrificed two or three years of their lives only touring the States, not seeing their family, anybody, like just playing every crappy backyard radio barbecue. Like it is a major investment to to break the States. And, and a lot of it comes down to luck too. So um, as Canadians, we have this perception that if, if if my american friends don't know this band they must be terrible or they must have failed hmm. and and uh there are all these other metrics that we're not looking at and um and a lot of bands in this book uh became very successful not necessarily in the states you know um for a while it looked like the states wouldn't work out for feist she was doing very well in europe very well in canada um and if it wasn't for that uh ipod ad maybe the states would yeah. not have happened for her but she still had these other avenues open to her and she wouldn't have been a failure if she didn't make the states um or even alexis on fire again the, there's many parallels with the hip and alexis on fire and mm. the states is not 
my understanding is it's not awesome for them. Uh, in fact, City and Color does much better in the States than Lexington. Yeah. Um, but again, they don't need to because they can play South America, they can play Europe, they can play Australia, and they Australia, yeah. play stadiums across Canada. So, you know, uh, one thing, one of many things I hope people take away from this book is that, yeah, the States is not the be all and end all. And, and, and another thing about this period of time is that it was a time when a lot of people could succeed in, in, somewhat narrow niches you know a band like caribou makes music that um will never ever 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 get played on canadian radio that's just not what canadian radio does um it doesn't take anything away from his music he's incredible and he's innovative and he's interesting and uh he's also an amazing amazing guy to talk to um and he just slowly built up his niche audience over years and um you know, without a radio hit or whatever, like he plays large venues all around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a time when that, when that thinking really shifted that the only way to be successful is to have a radio hit and to break the States. This meant there's a whole bunch of different ways to make it. And when there's a whole bunch of different ways to make it, people who make really weird, interesting music um, can succeed around the world. Perfect, perfect segue-ish because who who I really enjoyed learning the backstory of that I wasn't aware of aside from reading the book, uh, outside of reading the book, um, Chili Gonzalez. And like people don't realize he's gone on to win Grammys or with random access memories with Daft Punk and, and so many massive things that you don't necessarily know it's, I mean, you know, it's him because he's on the liner and it's with Chili Gonzalez, right? For, um, with him. No, but yeah, who does that anymore? <laughs> but, but I just, I really like, I was hoping you could tell a bit of that story, um, in terms of Chili Gonzalez at that time, because again, he's probably the one of the least known biggest people <laughs> that's, that's covered in the book from that earlier period of time. Yeah, so uh, very similar to Peaches. Well, it's actually the same story as Peaches. So they yeah, went to Europe together. Um, and so he had a major label deal in, in um, Canada. And uh, it it went totally bust. Like it, he did very well kind of on Queen Street. And then he got signed to Warner. And then um, nothing happened at all. And he made the situation worse by demanding a lot of things. And uh, um his the first single off his second major label record had um the really popular accessible title of making a jew cry which uh yeah you want to kill your uh, career yeah jason beck himself is jewish i should clarify this uh yes but you know if you don't know that you're not going to play that song and you're probably not going to play that song so um and his uh the one thing that anybody needs to know about Chili Gonzalez is that he has an enormous ego. Um, and he freely admits that and he talks about it in the ways in which he wrestles with it all the time. So he loses his deal and he takes his ego and goes to Europe and says, let's just, I, I tried to make this very well-crafted high musicianship music failed. I'm just going to rap over crappy electro beats and, and act like a total buffoon and see where that gets me. Lo and behold, it got him very far. And he and he became a sensation in Berlin and kind of surrounding areas as this kind of buffoon character. Uh, and then during the show, he would suddenly sit down at a piano and start playing like 
sonatas or something. And people would be like, what? What? This total jackass can slay on the piano? So his whole career was about like subverting expectations. Hmm. And then one thing leads to another. And then he, he ends up working with this French producer who's doing stuff with uh, Jane Birkin and Charles Az- Aznavour and all these kind of French greats. And out of that, he finagles a deal for his friend Leslie Feist, and they make the album Let It Die together. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge success in France, uh, even before it's a success here at home. Um, and then, uh, then one thing leads to another, and then, yeah, he becomes this kind of um, behind-the-scenes figure, helping out a lot of people. Um, not helping out his friend Peaches, not because she doesn't want it, but because she's capable of doing it herself, and there's a lot of sexist assumptions that mm. made all of Peaches' beats, which is not true she did that all herself um but anyway those three are all peas in a pod and that's something people don't know about leslie feist because people have this image of of what leslie is and the kind of music she makes and if you're not that familiar with leslie uh you might think she makes you know nice light pleasant wispy pop songs that your mom likes but um (laughs) she used to be on stage with peaches in a pretty raunchy act you know um where her her stage name is bitch lap lap and um, <laughs> and so I I didn't tell Feist's story in the context of broken social scene where a lot of people think it would be. Yeah. Instead, I told it alongside Peaches and Gonzalez because that's really where she belongs because those two people are uh, instrumental uh, key uh, reasons why she has the career that she does. Uh, not broken social scene. That's if anything, she helped broken social scene, not the other way around. That's really interesting, and and that's something that people wouldn't know about uh, about Leslie Feist is that that part of her career outside of her solo and and her work with Broken Social Scene. Um, that being said, and maybe some of the stuff you learned about Danko Jones outside of those um, and outside of the things that we've spoken about, was there a story or a musician that or a musician story or a band story that really um, opened your eyes or or when it got told to, or when you discovered it, you, you did not know before. Um, yeah, usually with stuff, uh, that I wasn't familiar with. So again, you know, back to all the hard rock music I never listened to, uh, um, a lot of that was news to me. Um, okay. And also there's a hip hop chapter in this book, Mm. which, uh, not a lot of people talk about. Um, but that was Greg's, by the way, just to clarify, that was Greg's homework. He was okay. supposed to read the hip hop <laughs> chapters. Well, well, he hasn't asked we a question. We were, no, but no, but we were going to talk about Socrates, right? Socrates. Socrates. No, Socrates. 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 <laughs> okay, so I got to set this up. It's his one hundred. But we're not doing welcome to music at this point. It's just welcome with Kareem. It's his one hundredth episode. He's got Maestro. We're up above Betty's in the the lounge or the house apartment space or whatever up there. <clears throat> and he says. Maestro. So, can you talk about Socrates? <laughs> and Maestro right. looked at him like, you are a... <laughs> but so, he stayed? Yes. He had a laugh? Yeah. He carried he, on. He actually, I, I'm surprised he didn't get up and leave at that point. But yeah, no, it was... It was uh, so, so to this day, we bust him on Socrates all the time. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> Maestro, where are you going? Maestro, come back. <laughs> Maestro. <laughs> All right, kids. Perfect. Let's settle down. Let's Perfect. settle down. Sorry, I didn't um, mean to interrupt you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so um, I, uh, you know, there's not, there's actually zero connection between, no, that's not true. Chaos, there's crossover with chaos and broken social scene. 
Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other than that, there's there's very little connection with the hip hop scene and everybody else I talk about. Uh, but it would be negligent of me not to talk about hip hop. And my initial thought going into this was, you know, hip hop in Canada is always at least 10 years behind the rest of the industry, if not 20 in terms of uh, acceptance, in terms of uh, okay. infrastructure. You know, there's just so many barriers to hip hop being successful in Canada, which is far less true now in the last 10 years. But um, so I thought, well, while I'm talking about all these other people becoming successful, maybe I'll end up talking about why hip hop didn't break before Drake. Like, um, because my understanding as a fan and a Torontonian was that, you know, Cardinal was this really hardworking guy uh he he was kind of the scene he coined the term t dot he's and um i always kept hearing these things about how things weren't going great for him you know like he had a a a record that got lost in corporate shuffle and all this stuff and got buried and all these kind of false starts i thought maybe i'll write about that and just to illustrate like how it took time for hip-hop to catch to catch up to everybody else in terms of industry support And then what I learned was that um, uh, that all that stuff about Cardinal is true, and that like he he was doing well here. He could have signed to a Canadian, but he, label, but he was like, "Why? They're they're literally offering me peanuts. Like, there's there's it's not worth it." And then he signs to an American label, gets a bunch of money, but then they totally bury his record, and it never comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was like, uh, he was on this uh, pop single by a Scottish pop band. Uh, there was an international hit. Um, years later, of course, he has the big international hit with Akon. Um, and uh, he's well-known and well-respected. And he was like touring with The Roots and he was like doing all this other stuff. Uh, and people in America definitely know who he is. People who love the band uh, The Clips, which was a kind of a Neptunes-associated uh, group, uh, Pusha T, uh, they, they know Cardinal. Uh, he uh, is on Rihanna's first record. Like he did have all this success that mm-hmm. I didn't know as a Torontonian. Um, and that was news to me. Uh, and also mm-hmm. uh, someone like Vancouver Swollen Members. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't realize what an independent success story they were. Like they were literally those guys selling records out of the trunk of their car up and down the West Coast from California to Vancouver um, and doing very, very, very well. And by the time they had their Much Music video hit and stuff, like they almost didn't need that because mm-hmm. they were already doing so well. Um, and then they also don't get a lot of credit in the evolution of hip hop in Canada because they're from Vancouver. You know, the rascals barely get the credit. People talk about Northern touch. They talk about Cardinal and Shaclair and everybody else. And it's almost like people forget that. No, that's actually a rascals track that all those people are on. Oh, um, So I feel like Vancouver gets left out of Canadian hip hop history, which mm-hmm. is largely written by Torontonians um, and swollen members. Again, there's an artist, not my favorite band in the world. Uh, but I think they really deserve a lot of respect for um, for how they built their career and their success and their their independent approach to uh, Canadian music. Nice, yeah, absolutely. Uh, little known fact: my first marriage, not my current marriage, my first marriage was at Cardinal Officials' house. <laughs> now it wasn't his it house wasn't at the time. Name. Oh. My uncle and aunt had 15 acres, I won't say where, uh, along a river and uh, northwest. 
And uh, they sold to Cardinal and they said he was the nicest guy and they loved him. They loved his wife and said yeah. he was just salt of the earth. So I wasn't actually married at Cardinal's house, but the house I was married at is now. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I mean, I got to drop names when I can, right? <laughs> Speaking of names, Michael, um, yeah. I know you want to ask a question about Greg's, Greg's shirt. Uh this being an audio form, I wasn't going to bring up any no. visuals, but uh, I, <laughs> he is wearing a shirt with the word Greg's all over it. Yeah. Like who's got a bigger head in the music business? <laughs> Greg or, or Chili Gonzalez? Like what are your, like would Chili wear a shirt that said Chili on it? Is what I, is uh, what I mean. Probably. Yeah. Or he'd wear a bathrobe. He'd wear a bathrobe with that. He would wear a bathrobe. Um, was last night was the Polaris Music Award, I believe. It was, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the future of music very quickly. Um, I, I know you, <laughs> you you tend to pick uh, winners. I don't uh, actually. I, I counted the other day. I've picked six out of seventeen. This was the seventeenth Polaris Award. Yeah, I've, I've only made correct predictions six times. Did you pick correctly last night? No, I did not. Oh, who did you pick? Uh, I, you know what? I don't, I don't even know if I did pick cause I found this year full of wild cards. Mm-hmm. Um, do you I have wanted, an official vote by the way, Michael? Not on, not on who wins. I have okay. a vote on the lists. Okay. So everybody on the jury votes on the long list and cause you can vote for anything. And then, yeah. uh, they pick the top ones to be the long list. And then to vote for the short list, you're only allowed to pick from the long list. Okay. Um, so I've, and uh, every year, a different a group of 11 people pick the winner. Okay. So I, I was I was on the jury the year that Feist won in 2013, mm. I believe. Yeah. Um, for her album, Metals, which uh, has aged very well. Still love that record. Um, so, yeah, I, I was not responsible for picking the winner. Uh, my favorite uh, on that list was uh, the Snotty Nose Res Kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, love that record a lot. Yep. Love that yep. band a lot. Um, and uh, but I also quite like the winner, uh, Pierre Quenders from Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't love this record. Like I think it's I think it's a nice record. It's a good record. It's a deserving record. Uh, it's not a record I love. So I didn't uh, I didn't predict that it would win. But I'm very happy for him because he's a fascinating guy mm-hmm. uh, and very interesting guy. And uh, so yeah. More power to him. What are your, your thoughts on on the future of Canadian music based on the 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 past winners that we've seen so far over the well, not so far, but over the past few years? Uh, well, it's been a really interesting shift. It's been all R and B or hip hop for the last four or five years, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, although backwash is arguably more metal industrial than hip hop, um, although they identify as a rapper, so. But uh, Caden Sweppen, Hawaii Mighty. Um, yeah. Who was before that? Was Lido before that? I, I can't, can't remember. remember that far back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, so that's been a shift. And um, but for me, it's not always about the winner. It is about like who's on the list. Uh, mm-hmm. What I like about Polaris is it, it does show how interesting and diverse a lot of Canadian music is. Yeah. Like it's not just a bunch of indie rock. It's it's not just a bunch of 
hip hop or Drake soundalikes. It's not <laughs> just X or it's not just Y. It's um, there's really a lot of interesting things on there. So you have someone more jazzy like Charlotte Day Wilson this year. You have uh, kind of straight up grunge band with Lombigazi. You have uh, kind of like uh, old school 70s singer songwriter rock with Kelly McMichael. Um, uh, more experimental stuff with Uri. Like, yeah, uh, it's really all over the place. And that's what I love about that prize. Um, the Junos is what it is. The Junos are very commercial. And I think there's totally a place for that. And it might not always be my thing, but we need that too. You know, we need the sure. Sean Mendes of the world. We need the, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the weekends, obviously. Um, and Michael Bublé's and whatever else, the Jan Arden's like, that's what I love about all that stuff is there's space for all of it to exist. Whereas when I was growing up, it was like the Junos are bust. And if something wasn't nominated for Juno, it got totally ignored and left out of history. And now, I mean, frankly, I think, there should be even more. I mean, there's several large book prizes in Canada. I don't, I'm mm. sure there could be more music prizes. I mean, the ECMAs on the East Coast uh, hold a lot of weight out there, you know, and mm-hmm. there's also Western Canadian awards. As a Torontonian, I have no idea who wins those awards, but I'm very glad they exist. <laughs> and they uh, recognize sure. those regional scenes, you know, yeah. because yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's near impossible to survive as a Canadian musician these days. So, you know, we need all the, the recognition uh, we can get. Um, and that includes telling the history and telling different histories and not just the histories of, you know, Joni Mitchell or Rush or Brian Adams or Celine Dion. Like, there's always more. There's always, always, always more when you look. And that's when you find the Jackie Shanes or the Willie Dunn's or whoever else, like kind of people rescued from the dustbins of history that only a couple of historians know about. And then mm-hmm. get it to a nice reissue, and you know, uh, I'm really hoping Lillian Allen has her moment sometime soon. You know, like there's always, yeah. Uh, Mary Margaret O'Hara continues to inspire people. People still discover that record, and um, I just would like young Canadians to to know that history and not just think that um, Canadian music is just the same nine or ten artists, and, and that it all sounds the same. Absolutely, and and and, and Michael, that's, and that's Sir Guy Debs. And Michael, you know, as as I said on Twitter yesterday, um, you know, whether it's people like Alan Cross or yourself um, or even, you know, uh, other people like, you know, we've had uh, Jason Schneider on as well. Um, David McPherson. Yep. Yeah. I, these are, you know, you are part of the reason or you are you are one of, a, of the few people in, in Canada who um are chronicling, are telling stories about music, um, and people can discover, you know, brand new artists that have been around for decades, but to them they're brand new. Uh, and I think that is one of the reasons why, you know, your book Hearts on Fire um, is is amazing because even for people like Greg and myself um, who think we know everything about music, you know, discover <laughs> Greg more than me. Uh, you know, are excited to discover even artists we know, but you know, discover their stories. Yeah. Um, you know, so thank yeah. you for 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 writing this book, Greg. You wanted to finish off. It's, a, it's exactly what I was, I was going to say. The exact same thing. That's exactly where I was going. So yeah. Well, I I'll, I thank you for all of that, and I will add. Um, you should really have Nick Jennings on this show, uh, who wrote a great book called Before the Gold Rush, 
which is a big inspiration for me. It was about the Yorkville scene of the of the sixties, and it was, that was kind of the first book I read that took Canadian music history very seriously. Um, came out in the mid nineties. You're writing it down, Kareem. That's very good, Nicholas. Greg, Jennings. this is called research, Nick Jennings. <laughs> Uh, and he also wrote a Lightfoot biography a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, I'm right. also aware of two other Canadian music books in the works um, that I'm very excited about. One, I've been waiting for literally more than 20 years for the author to do it. I'm told they're finally finishing it. I won't jinx it by telling you what it is, but it's a very genre-specific, important Canadian work. And the other book I'm aware of is set in the same same time period as mine and it's about a lot of music i hate but a lot of music that's very popular hard rock means a lot to that uh, generation of young people from that time period and All that right. book is also being written so i'm excited uh that there are more books being written because you know i part of the reason i want my books to exist is to inspire other people to write their own either because they love what I do so much or because they hate what I do so much and they think, damn it, I can do a lot better than they that. Do it. <laughs> so let's do it. So. Well, Michael, you were, you were right. kind enough to send over Tom Steven uh, right. when, when he wrote his book and it was uh, amazing speaking yeah. with him and, and just hearing the stories uh, that he had to tell. Um, so, you know, when these two other books come out that you're not naming, uh, you know how to get a hold of us. Uh, you know, let us know who we need to chat with. And, yep. uh, you know, we'd love, uh, you know, off, offline, I'll, I'll get in touch with you about how best to reach Nick. And um, uh, as well as we really need uh, oh. to get uh, Danko Jones on. And uh, Johnny Dobercourt wrote a great book called Any Night of the Week. I got that book here somewhere, yeah. Okay, great. And he is yeah. uh, he is hosting the panel I'm doing on Saturday with Cadence Weapon at Harborfront, 4.30 p.m., Toronto International Festival of Authors. 4.30 p.m. Greg, just take notes here. Harborfront, Saturday. Yeah. Great. Michael, thank Kareem you. He was licking book. his pen, by the way. I just have to say, for the yeah. people at home that aren't that, watching on YouTube, he was licking his pen like a what you do reporter from the 30s. Go ahead. <laughs> You, you got to clarify the weird audio that pops up in this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the book is Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005. The author is Michael Barclay, published by our friends at uh, ECW. Michael, we look forward to having you on again. This has been a blast. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank Anytime. you. Thank you so much, gentlemen.